So uh, what, what we're going to do for the class, or rather what I'm going to do for the class is, as, as I've told you in every class, you don't really have to read, but the reading is, will be good for you, right? I mean, it's, it's especially good for you to encounter uh, the book that you're reading, and especially Lewis and his own words and, and all that kind of stuff. But what you're going to get when you come to class is um, me reading a lot of it and giving commentary um, and, and sort of extracting some of the, a lot of the nuggets and sort of what Lewis is focusing on when he, you know, when he's, when he's talking about um, these things. Now, somebody, I, and don't raise your hand, somebody told me, uh, it took them about three chapters to figure out what was actually, who was actually who in the book. And, and that's okay, um, because it's a strange, it's kind of a strange, I mean, it's actually very original, um, rather original anyway, um, way of talking about uh, spiritual uh, warfare and temptation. The book is really not about devils. It's really not about hell. It's not really about Satan. It's really about uh, the individual soul and how we are, how we can be tempted, how we can be, you know, tempted away from the good, and, and ultimately, I mean, we obviously do get a, a peek inside uh, sort of how Lewis conceives that, you know, Satan and, and devils are trying to essentially drag us to hell and the way that they do it. Um, so I'd like to offer to you a couple of things. Uh, the first thing you don't have access to, uh, which is the preface to the 1961 edition. So this was published in, in 1942. So this predates mere Christianity, uh, comes on the heels of, let's see, Problem of Pain was written in 1940. So this is a very fruitful time in Lewis's uh, Christian writing. Um, and so the 1961 edition, obviously, you know, you have, he has almost 20 years of, of it being in print. And uh, they don't include it in, the, uh, in, in most of the editions, but I happen to find it. And so I'd like to just... Um, so, no, the one that you have is the original preface, which is good. You should know that. Maybe we should look at that first. So uh, let's go ahead and look at the, the preface because... Uh, he, he kind of gets at some of the questions people might have. You know, why are we even thinking about devils? Why are we, why are we presuming to know what they might be doing? Um, and Lewis is pretty clear that all of this comes from him. This all emanates from him, and, and uh, it comes from his reflections, largely. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff... Um, you know, the goal of this class is not to get you focused on what are devils like. So if, it, now that's interesting, and I have St. Thomas Aquinas's um, De Malo, which is his, his treatise on evil, De Malo, um, and I've, I've, you know, reviewed quite a bit of that once again. So, I mean, I can answer a number of questions about what the greatest Christian theologian has written about devils. However, the book isn't really about that, okay? It's really not about gee, what else can we know about, you know, devils or, or that kind of thing? Or what are they like? What do they do? What can they do? What can't they do? That's not really the point. And he, he kind of goes into that here. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. 
One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So on one hand, the person who, who, who will just say, well, they don't exist, well, then there's really not much point of reading a book like this. Right? There's not even much point of talking about uh, spiritual warfare or, or you know, temptation, except insofar as it emanates from just the, uh, the individual human uh, will and intellect, but without any sort of spiritual you know, component that, that makes claims on us or tries to dissuade us or persuade us uh, to evil. The other thing here, and, and uh, you know, again, this is how we're supposed to read the, the ensuing letters. Readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Not everything that Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. Okay, so when you're, when you're reading the letters, they, they might be somewhat confusing. Like, well, what am I supposed to think of this? We have to remember it's coming from the perspective of Screwtape. It's his perspective on what truth is. Um, and given that he's a liar, obviously there are certain things that he's going to get, get wrong. So, you know, one of the things about this is that, um, you know, perhaps it takes somebody who can, who can explain, you know, a few of these things so that people don't get too, get too tripped up. Um, so the question, is, no, the letters, okay, so the, thank you for that question, who is Screwtape? So basically it goes like this, um, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit when I talk about the, the 61 preface or what he writes in there, but, but, but basically what you have are letters from Screwtape to his nephew. They're both devils, um, not the devil, they're just devils in the devil's employ, as it were. They're both, you know, fallen angels. And... Uh, Uncle Screwtape <laughs> makes him sound way too friendly. Um, Uncle Screwtape is advising his, his nephew, who's sort of a, a younger, newer, less uh, uh, experienced devil, on how to tempt his patient, right? His patient is this man that, that they're talking about, okay? So it's, it's advice on how devils are, you know, the senior, the senior devil is sort of saying, this is how we get people to hell. And this is how you ought to go about it. He's advising his, his nephew. Um, so he talks about, uh, in the 61 edition, he talks about how um, uh, this, this book actually is sold very, very well. And uh, he says, of course, sales do not always mean what authors hope. He said, if you gauged the amount of Bible reading in England by the number of Bibles sold, you would go far astray, right? Sometimes uh, the book is bought for even more humiliating reasons. A lady whom I knew discovered that the pretty little pr probationer who filled her hot water bottle in the hospital had read screw tape. She also discovered why. This is what the girl said as to why she read the book. You see, said the girl, we were warned at the interviews, after the real technical questions are over, matrons and people sometimes ask about your general interests. The best thing is to say you've read something. So they gave us a list of about 10 books that usually go down pretty well and said we ought to read at least one of them. And you chose Screwtape? Well, of course, 
It was the shortest. Um, now, now, he goes into a couple things, if you remember from Mere Christianity, this again is the 61 preface. The communist, because he gets these questions, you know, people are writing him letters over the course of 20 years, why did you write it, and he's responding to uh, questions as well as, you know, comments and criticisms. The communist question that I get, says Lewis, is whether I really believe in the devil. And so he says, now, if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain a perfect badness opposite the perfect goodness of God. For when you have taken away every kind of good thing, there would be none of him left. Okay, so does anybody remember what that what that position is, that there would be two equal, infinite powers in, uh, in the world or in creation? Sorry? No, that's not the Arian heresy. Sorry? Well, yeah, yin and yang is getting at dualism. Dualism is the, is the position that there's, there's two co-equal you know, powers in the universe. And when you, when you read Mere Christianity, um, or you can go back and listen to it, uh, the, the lecture, he goes into why that's, it's, it's logically impossible for there be, to be two, two equal and perfect powers from all of eternity. So the reason I'm reading this is for us to understand what, who the devil is and, and, and a little bit about his nature. So when we talk about the devil, we're not talking about a sort of equal to God in power or being, not at all. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God and as a corollary to us. These we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael, St. Michael the Archangel. So it's important that we just, you know, kind of get that right, that, that there's God, God creates beings. Um, some of these beings only have intellect and will, They're, they are angels. And some of those angels uh, rebelled against God. This is just sort of the, the, the Christian tradition of, of how they came to be. They rebelled against God. And so the opposite of, of Satan is, is an angel. The opposite of a devil is an angel, okay? That one would be in charge is, is merely based on, you know, rank or power. But, there, but Satan is clearly not equal to God. It should be, it should be but it, it is not unnecessary to add that a belief in angels, whether good or evil, does not mean a belief in either as they are represented in art and literature. Okay, devils are depicted with bats' wings and good angels with birds' wings, not because anyone holds that moral deterioration, deterioration would, likely turn to feather, would likely turn feathers into membrane, but because most men like birds better than bats. So when we, when we start to think about all the symbols of of angels and, and devils, we have to remember that none of them have, they may appear in certain forms in the Bible because God allows them to, but they don't have 
they don't have physical properties as such. They're just intellect, they're, they're intellect and will without those bodies. Okay, moving on. Um, so he, he goes and, and talks about sort of his depiction of hell. Um, Satan, Chesterton said, fell through force of gravity. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. This to begin with, for this to begin with. For the rest, my own choice of symbols depended, I suppose, on temperament and the age. And then he goes on to talk about how he, you know, he says, and he's writing, well, he wrote in 19, you know, in, in published in, in 42, but, but uh, you know, he's talking about living in a managerial age, okay, in a world that he, he says, quote, of admin, um, which is actually also a really interesting thing to look at if you, if you look at, um, if you look at uh, Hitler, the concentration camps, and, and, and how they, um, how they actually use that same mentality to, to, to bring about the Holocaust, but that's, that's another class. Um, but, um, but he's saying he's conceiving of, you know, sort of hell, not as this like, uh, you know, not as all this fire and volcanoes and, you know, everything else, I guess, but, but he, he conceives it as ordered, clean, carpeted, warmed, well-lit offices, by quiet men with white collars. I mean, this is how he's describing the, the admin age. Well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Um, this symbol also, or this way of looking at, you know, the activity of devils, also enabled me to get rid of the absurd fancy that devils are engaged in the disinterested pursuit of something called evil, with a capital E. Mine have no use for any such turnip ghost. Bad angels, like bad men, are entirely practical. They have two motives. The first is fear of punishment. For as totalitarian countries have their camps for torture, so my hell contains deeper hells, its, quote, houses of correction. Their second motive is a kind of hunger. I feign that devils can, in a spiritual sense, eat one another and us. Even in human life, we have seen the passion to dominate, almost to digest one's fellow. To make this his whole intellectual and emotional life merely an extension of one's own, to hate one's hatreds and resent one's grievances and indulge one's egoism through him as well as through oneself. His own little store of passion must, of course, be suppressed to make room for ours. If he resists this suppression, he is being very selfish. On earth, this desire is often called love. In hell, I feign that they recognize it as a hunger. But there the hunger is more ravenous, and a fuller satisfaction is possible. 
There I suggest the stronger spirit, there are perhaps no bodies to impede the operation, the stronger spirit can really and irrevocably suck the weaker into itself and permanently gorge its own being on the weaker's outraged individuality. It is, I feign, uh, for this that the devils desire human souls and the souls of one another. It is for this that Satan desires all his own followers and all the sons of Eve and all the host of heaven. His dream, this is an important sentence, his dream is of the day when all shall be inside him and all that says I can say it only through him. Now, when we, when we end up doing our, our, our class on uh, the great divorce, which, you know, I'll do that at some point, uh, we'll see a lot of the, these same ideas uh, when reflecting on, on what hell must be like. Um, but, you know, his focus here is that hell is sort of unfettered egoism at, at, at the least. It's more than that. But... Um, you know, as he says in, I can't remember if it's mere Christianity, um, he says that those in hell, um, wait, how does it go? In the end, there are only two types of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So that only God's will can exist in heaven, but in hell, every individual is still pursuing their own will, their own selfish uh, egoism, which I suppose is redundant. Okay, and so uh, just about done here. Um, he says here, the purpose of the book is not to speculate about dia diabolical life, but to throw light from a new angle on the life of men. So what I'm, what I'm hoping you get out of the class here, and the reason I'm doing this in Lent, is, um, is I'm, I'm hoping that every single one of us, including myself, um, reflect on, on what's being said here. And I'm going to try to draw that out for our reflection. And my hope is that you see yourself in, in some of this. Not because I want you to become dispirited by seeing yourself in it but to become more self-aware. It's really about awareness. The more aware that we can be of, um, of our spiritual issues, uh, the more that we'll be able to grow. And, and people tend to be, you know, like an onion. You peel one layer, and you think you got something figured out, and you still got more onion. And you <laughs> peel another layer, and, you know, um, or like those Russian, uh, what are those doll things? What are they? Nesting dolls, yeah, those things. Um, except for you never reach the end, you know. <laughs> you just, uh, you just sort of die. Okay, well, I got as far as I could. Um, so, so that's my that's my hope for you. Not, I mean, it's okay if you have questions about Satan and God and or you know hell and devils. I mean, that's fine. Um, there's, it, I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with that. But what I what I really would desire for you to do is to take this as just introspection. You know, to really incorporate it into your prayer, your discipline, discipline for Lent. You know, how can I grow? You know, and if, if we read something or if I comment on something, you say, oh, my gosh, that's me. 
I wonder if everybody else sees it. We do, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's actually a comment like that in, in, uh, in here. But, um, um, you know, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um, if you really want to know, though, another way to uh, just, I'll say this as a, as a corollary, but, um, you know, if you, if you really want to work on yourself, find one or two people who know you better than anyone else and ask them what your faults are. And, and tell them, look, I'm, I won't get mad. <laughs> and uh, I'm not asking you, you know, I don't want this to create conflict, but you tell me what you think, you know, my, my issues are. And, uh, or you can just become a priest and then you have a whole community that tells you. Um, <laughs> I'm only half joking. Okay, here we go. So he, screw tape, uncles, uncle screw tape is writing to nephew Wormwood. Okay. My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. Of course, the enemy is God, right? The patient is, you know, Bob, all right? Bob in England. That might have been that might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous that is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Okay, so, you know, obviously Lewis has taken a comment here upon the state of modernity at that time, which I think is still rather pervasive today. You know, he's saying, look, there was a time when, uh, you know, argument uh, might have been, you know, useful, but you know, as soon as you start using reason, you're essentially playing on the em enemy's grounds. You're, you're playing on God's grounds. Okay, um, and with modernity, we have this ability, again, from Lewis via screw tape to Wormwood, we have this ability not to get him to think about whether materialism, right, uh, materialism, the, the idea that everything is merely matter, there is no spiritual reality. Um, get, don't get him to entertain whether it's true or false, engaging his reason or argument but get him to think about whether it's a strong philosophy or, you know, or it's a, it's a courageous one or it's the philosophy of the future. You know, would Kim Kardashian be a materialist? Oh, well, I think, I think that's, if you even know who she is, I think that's pretty clear. Um, although materialism in a different sense than he's using it here. All right, moving on. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle on the enemy's ground own ground. He can argue too, whereas 
in really practical propaganda of the kind I'm suggesting, he has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below. You notice when he says our father, right? Everything's inverted. It's all inverted. Our father below is, of course, Satan. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and draw, withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life, and don't let him ask what he means by real. Right? The whole goal here is to not get us to focus on ultimate truths. You know? Don't, uh, let's make it contemporary, don't question whether it's even possible for somebody to be transgender. Don't even think about that. Just, just make the person consider that it's tolerant. You see, that's the goal. Is screw tape really? Uh, I better not say that. Um, <laughs> be careful with what I say. But, but that's what propaganda is, you know. You know, and again, as soon as, as soon as you, those of you who are aware of that particular issue, as soon as somebody would suggest that perhaps there's, there's actually truth involved with the question of a trans, the transgender, you know, movement, as soon as somebody would say, well, well, is it true? Well, hey, you know, all of a sudden people get really uncomfortable because it's not about truth. It's about what that person feels. It's about what they want to do. And it's about us being tolerant for whatever anybody else wants to do. Right? That's what propaganda is. Remember, he is not like you. That is, your patient, the man, is not like you, the devil, a pure spirit. Never having been human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies, not having ever been human, you do not realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them, the counter-suggestion that this was more important than lunch, at least I think that's what must have been his line, for when I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had, it at, I had added much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday, the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he had reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him in an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come up into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our Father's house. 
he's now safe in hell. So, you know, and Lewis is going to come back to this uh, at a later point here in a couple chapters. I'm, I'm basically just going to try to focus us up through chapter six. But, um, you know, the idea here is that to consider ultimate universal ideas, ultimate truth, the, it takes brain power to think about this stuff. It's just easier to, to go and have lunch. It's easier to, just to, to go and do something else. You know? And from Lewis's perspective, there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual element here. You know? Quite frankly, it's easier to go about your Lent with, without really taking a class on this. You know? And the very fact that you're here um, is both a good as well as an opportunity for attack. I have no doubt that some of you were attacked with all kinds of reasons for not coming tonight. And you'll be attacked, you're probably being attacked right now with all kinds of reasons not to come back. You know? And I mean, some of them might be good, but, but you know, I mean, there might be a spiritual component in that as well. You know, why not to continue? You know, this happens to people, uh, you know, we have, we have some people uh, who are going to be baptized this Easter. This happens to them, especially during Lent. Especially during Lent, people who are going to be baptized... I see you. Um, you're going to be under attack all Lent. Expect it. Just expect it. Because, you know, as soon as God has you baptized and your soul has the ability to, uh, to receive grace, I mean, it's an incredible, if you will, victory for God and an incredible defeat for, for Satan. Not an ultimate one, but obviously you're moving in the right direction. As soon as our minds are awakened to these sorts of realities, it changes the way we look at things, inconveniences, the consideration of truth, um, you know, putting in hard work to learn more about our faith, ourselves, our, you know, it's, it's quite frankly, it's, it's in one sense easier to go, throughout life, go through life without really reflecting on ourselves, without really knowing ourselves and, and knowing the positives and negatives and all the rest. It's easier to sleepwalk through life in one sense until we begin to be awakened to the truth of, of things as well as ourselves. Then, all of a sudden, right, we, we start to, to have this illumination. And, and it actually opens us up to this greater realization of, both our faults as well as our strengths and how God is operative and all of that. And once we get connected to that, then we, then we realize that sleepwalking through life was in many ways the hardest thing we could have ever done. But in other ways, it was easier. Okay. Uh, you see the point. They find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar when the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home the ordinariness of life. Do not attempt to use science, I mean the real sciences, as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. If he must dabble in science, <laughs> keep him on economics and sociology. Um, because those, you know, you're not going to consider ultimate truths, really, Okay. It's not a slight against all the sociologists in the room. That's, uh, all right. But the best of all is to let him read no science 
but to give him a grand general idea that he knows it all and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember, you are there to fuddle him. Right? The last thing Satan wants us to do is consider truth, reality. Right? Okay, so we move to, to letter number two, and, and we find that uh, the patient, let's call him Bob, uh, Bob has become a Christian. And so now Screwtape is, uh, you know, is talking about that. And what's interesting is uh, he says there's no need to despair just because he's become a Christian. In other words, he ain't out of our clutches yet by a long shot. He says, hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. (laughs) This is great. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. It's just interesting to, to contemplate. One of, the great, one of our great allies is the church itself. And I don't mean the church as we see her spread out throughout all of time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. Not that. But the church, the church that you know, essentially he experiences, when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with that rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him and sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, you want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. (laughs) That's the church he means, all right? So (laughs) the church is the people that Bob the patient is going to encounter every Sunday. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ, you know, the, the, the ideal, the body of Christ, where we are the body of Christ, that ideal of what it's supposed to be, and the guy next to him. Make him see that dichotomy because the guy next to him doesn't look like the body of Christ, right? Keep him focused on on how far away the regular people are from the ideal of what they ought to be. He said, you may know one of them next to him is a great warrior in the enemy's side. Doesn't matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, have boots boots that squeak, or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see he has an idea of, quote, Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real, though, of course, an unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind. Work hard on the disappointment or anti-climax. This is a really important point. Work on the disappointment or anti-climax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. This happens to everybody who becomes Catholic. They become Catholic, 
Then they start to live Catholic, and they're like, I don't really like these people. <laughs> wait a second, this is really hard. You know, it's, it's hard to pray. Wait, wait, you know, I was, it was great at the Easter Vigil when I got baptized and got the sacraments, but here I am a month later, and I feel like I've just, pew, you know, plummeted. What's that about? And from Lewis's perspective, God does this intentionally. This is God's intention. I talked about this um, in a homily. I was talking about floaties. Um, you know what floaties are with the kids? You put floaties on their arms when they're in the pool? When they're like one and they just bob? <laughs> you know? They're floaties. Um, and God will do that. He supports people with his grace like floaties. I gave this homily once to an entire, uh, entire group of women religious, like a hundred uh, a hundred nuns, they, they still remember it, Father with his floaties, and my bishop was like sitting right, right across our bishop. He laughed, so that was good. But anyway, so at a certain point, God gets rid of the floaties and doesn't give us that support, and this is what Lewis says about it. It occurs, this occurs, this, this, uh, this disappointment. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. With his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals, desiring their freedom he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. All right. It, and this, this is absolutely true. And, and um, you know, I think that I think this happens so often in uh, this dynamic. I see it happen so often in, in people's lives. I see it happen in my own. But. Um, you know, you really find out about yourself when things get tough. When things get really, really hard, you find out what you're made of. And, and this happens in so many walks of life. Um, you know, and, and uh, you can think about it with anything. I mean, if you're going to be good at anything in, in life, I mean, I, I, being a musician, I mean, the hours and hours and hours and pain, physical pain and mental fatigue of sitting at a piano or playing a guitar, and you might say, well, that's just, well, the point is that you can't become good at it unless, you, you, unless there's pain, unless there's a sort of suffering, not to become too much like, you know, uh, like what Nietzsche uh, would, would suggest, but, you know, the reality is that uh, if we're going to really be good at anything, it's going to take work and effort, and that includes being virtuous. You know, because our, our natural inclinations, now each one of us has a different composite of, of vice and virtue. You know, there, each one of us has particular virtues which are stronger and then vices which are stronger. We have, we're just all sort of different, you know, based upon our, our nature and nurture. But to, to bring up our vices so that they become virtues requ requires work. You know, when, when, when the highest goal of the Christian is to love one another and to love God above all things. That is not easy. You know, and, and he'll get into that too. 
where uh, Screwtable say, well, well keep, his, keep his focus on sort of the general love or charity of, you know, loving the world, you know, just sort of loving nature and mankind. But don't, don't get him to focus on loving the person next to him. But that's where God wants us to love. That's where God needs us to love is the person right next to us who we don't like. That's the one we need to love the most. And that is hard. You know, it's hard. Some people we like, and that's great. You know, it's mashed potatoes and butter and gravy and it's easy, you know. And then, and then there's Brussels sprouts over here, you know. And, geez, I don't, I don't love Brussels sprouts, but I guess I'm going to have to, you know. That's what we need to love. You know, if, you, if, if a person goes throughout their whole lives saying, well, I love mashed potatoes, look at how much I love mashed potatoes. Well, big deal. That's not hard. Start loving the person who annoys the heck out of you. you know, start loving the person who's, who's been mean to you or, or has betrayed you or has been dishonest to you. Start loving that person. That's where virtue grows, right? Okay, next page here. All right, if once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. Emotions are an essential part of who we are, but they're not a part of our higher nature. Animals have emotion. You know, my dog has emotion, but my dog doesn't have reason. My dog doesn't have free will. All right, so our emotions are a part of our lower nature, and because our emotions fluctuate um, so much, that's where we are most susceptible to attack from the enemy is through our emotions. I don't like this, I don't like that, or I like this, or I, you know, Satan can tempt us. The devil's contempt is based on our emotions so much easier than based on any kind of reason. As soon as we start focusing more on our reason, and, and we can look at our, our emotions through reason, you know, and, and, and enjoying the power of our will, then we're no longer guided by our emotions. I mean, Plato even knew this. You know, Plato talked about the tripartite soul, three parts of the soul, right? There's the intellect, there's the will, and there's the emotions, all right? And, and he knew, he, he said, uh, for a man to be rightly ordered would be like uh, a charioteer with two horses. And the charioteer is, is the reason controlling the, the will and the passions, okay? And as long as, the, as, long as the, the charioteer, the intellect, was in charge of these two, then the man was rightly ordered and wouldn't be, you know, get, get flung off. But as soon as one of the horses, you know, let's say it was the dominant horse, was, you know, was the spirited horse um, or the, uh, the emotional one, well, then the whole thing would go off the rails. So this, and this happens all the time in, in people's lives, you know. Um, just something simple like going to church. I don't like the music. I don't like that song. You know how many songs I don't like? I don't like just about all of them. And some of them I, you know, I really don't like. I'll even tell our musicians every once in a while, never play that song again. I, but, I, but it's only like two. 
Because if I said, don't play any of the songs I don't like, we'd be singing like two songs. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a goofball. I mean, you know, I'm the guy who only likes mashed potatoes, which is physically evident. Um, so, <laughs> but, it, but when we go to church, well, I didn't really like the homily this week. Eh, sorry, you know. Oh, well. But, you know, why are we going to church? I didn't get anything out of it. Well, why are you going to church? I mean, I have this discussion with little kids, and then I have it with old people. It's like nothing changes. Well, why are you going? You're not going to church for you, primarily. That's the problem. You shouldn't be going to worship God so that you get something out of it. Not primarily. Of course, we, we do. You know, we do get something out of it. But our primary goal is to worship God because it's good for us to do so. But our main focus is the worshiping of God doesn't matter if the music isn't good. It doesn't matter if I had a bad homily that Sunday. It doesn't matter if the person next to you was stinky, you know, <laughs> although you can kind of move, you know, if you have to. Although we have small churches up here, so it's hard to get away. But, um, or if the person next to you is annoying or, you know, whatever. It really doesn't matter. I mean, once we can get past the affectation, you know, and really, really focus on what we're there for, which is to worship God, then all of these other things, you know, cease to matter. I, of course, as you know, I mean, I've been, you know, all over Europe and I've, I've gone to mass in all these different languages. I've, I've celebrated mass with, with priests, Polish priests and Italian priests and German priests. I had no, no idea what they were saying. But I, you know, I figured it out and I, you know, I, I found a way to pray. Like a lot of our, our Hispanics, you know, here, it's difficult, you know, because you want to pray in your own language, of course. It's how you learn your prayers. And it's such a challenge to get past that, you know, and to really enter in. It's hard. It's hard. It's heroic, really. It's heroic. Okay. So there's uh, one, one other big point here that I want to get to. Keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian... Why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Keep out of his mind, if a goofball like me is a Christian, then that goofball like him is also a Christian. Keep that out of his mind, okay? Instead, keep him judging that other person, okay? At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks he's showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Keep him in the state of mind of, of you know, gosh, you know, here I am and, and I've, I've converted to Christianity and I've become this person and even though I'm you know, I'm going to church with all these bums, you know, look at, look at me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm slumming it for God and blah, blah, blah. I have seen this. I have seen this. Um, it's amazing. And the person who's in that state, they never know it. And you can see it. I mean, they even talk like that. They even talk like of their disappointment of becoming Catholic and what it is and 
well, I thought things would be better. And some of these people don't even know their faith. And they don't even sing well. And Father, you stink too. <laughs> you know? And you're talking to them and you're like, spiritual pride, which is the worst. The worst. I mean, there's pride, which is the worst. When you add spiritual pride, I'm better than these other boneheads. That is deadly. And that's why, you know, the devil's Satan wants to keep us in that state as long as he can. All right, so then he goes on. Chapter 3 is sort of like everyday pitfalls with his mother. And uh, just in the odd chance my mother's going to be listening to this podcast, I'm going to uh, refrain from making too many comments from my personal experience. Um, but, but he says, it, try, to, try to keep keep him focused on these, you know, day-to-day annoying pinpricks. In a sense, keep his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something going on inside of him, and his attention is chiefly turned internally. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the, obvi- of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked with him in the same office. Keep him in this state of, of examining the interior life without really coming to greater self-knowledge. Keep him in the state of sort of navel-gazing without being focused on the duties that charity demands right now. I mean, this is, all the saints talk in, in the, these terms, but especially, you know, you think of, of uh, St. Therese, you know, the little way, that it's, it's in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment activity that we grow in virtue. It's the person right here and now. I'll give you an example. Today, I went to a particular place in town, and the person working at that place presumably was there to help me. (laughs) So I went in and asked these very clear questions. I I think I'm somewhat level-headed. And I was treated like a complete annoyance and like they could not wait to get me out of there. And my opportunity was clear. I could destroy them right now. I could write a letter. I could call for the manager. I could, I could beep, 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 all kinds of stuff I was thinking. And in that moment, I'm thinking, oh, damn, I'm wearing this, too. <laughs> so I was getting it wearing this. Usually I get something, I don't know, you know, but usually, like, people are kind of nice. Um, <laughs> I usually don't get totally blown off when I'm wearing the clerics. But then I'm wearing it, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'm the priest. I can't do that. Um, So there was admittedly, and that's not the greatest reason to refrain from doing something, I admit, but that was part of it. And then the other part of me was like, it's okay. It's just okay. You know, it's all right. Whatever. You know, I'll just let it go. Because it's really not about me. You know, it's not my problem. It's her problem. Oh, that person's problem. Oh, you've now narrowed it down to all the women in town. <laughs> you know, it's, 
you know, it's, it really is. It's her, it's not my problem. It's her problem. And so, you know, I was able to, now here I am touting my virtue. Well, well, look, my point is, I, I mean, I could, I'll, I'll bring up examples of where it doesn't happen to, to balance it out, but as if they're not obvious to you. Um, but, you know, my point is that it's in the day to day. It's in that moment that, you know, we're called to virtue. It's in that moment we're called to something higher. It's not in this sort of like, you know, mental state of interior examination and just spending all of our day, you know, worrying about the interior life. Well, the interior life is made manifest in the exterior life. You know, we have to put to practice the, the thing, we have to put to practice who we are supposed to become so that we can eventually make them habits and therefore virtues. Um, it's no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but make the prayers innocuous. Make sure they're always spiritual. They're always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. So, you know, pray for her faults. Oh, I pray that, you know, my mother stops being a nag. I pray that my mother stops being egocentric. I pray that my mother stops doing this. I pray that she gets over it. So in other words, you know how you can, you can think about so that person, you know, whoever it is, who you're having a big, you know, big hard time with, you should just be praying for what they need, you know, praying that God blesses them. So sometimes people will ask me, well, Father, this person, I just can't stand them. I don't know what to do, you know, and I'll say, well, pray for them. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't work, Father. <laughs> as soon as I start praying for them, I start thinking about all the things that bug me. Right. So just pray that God blesses them and move on. One small act of charity is what they need, you know. But as soon as our prayers become weapons, you know, Lord, I pray that they get, you know, they become less selfish. <laughs> you know, we, we begin to just, we just focus on their, their lack of virtue or their problems. Or really what we're focusing on is what annoys us. And the more that we focus on what annoys us, the more that we're really not doing anything charitable at all, Right. That's, that's his point there. Um, the other, I won't get into all, all the details here because i got to get through everything. But, um, you know, and then he talks about working on irritability. So he's living this, you know, Bob, the patient, is living with his mother. You know, focus on things like tones of voice, expressions of faith, face, which always irritate the other person. And bring that out so that just the smallest look or comment or, or tone of voice can can send somebody through the roof. I have this imagine, I have this idea that perhaps this is something that happens with, with married couples. Um, not being one, I wouldn't know, but, you know, don't look at me that way, you know, which, which is really just an extension of like being five years old, you know, with the, the two kids in the back seat. Mom, what? He's looking at me. <laughs> Stop looking at her. <laughs> what? He's just looking at me, you know? It just doesn't stop, right? So you get into, you get, you get older and it's the tone of voice or the way somebody says something. And basically what this, what this uh, in psychology is called is, a, is, is really, it's, it's a cognitive distortion called mind reading, you know? So somebody says something in a certain tone of voice or nowadays they write in an email and they don't put enough smiley faces and we read into that intentionality. We read into that. Uh, tone, we read into that bad faith, you know, ill faith, and, and we put that on the person. 
Um, and it becomes our own construction of what's really happening. And so what, you know, what Screwtape is saying here is, is, you know, get that going in a person so that they're, they're basically not even being annoyed with a real person. They're being annoyed with this construct that they've created in their mind of this other person and what they, what they are or are, are not doing to them, which annoys them, which isn't even real. Okay. I'm going to move to chapter 4 on prayer. The best thing, he says, is to keep the, to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember, or to think he remembers, the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be in an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. That's the kind of prayer that we're after. It's just, just this sort of pious mood. Not real prayers, the Lord's Prayer, you know, um, which was the gospel for today. Not real prayers that we learned when we were young. But just sort of try to, you know, get him, give him this sense that, well, he's an adult, and as an adult, and he just needs to conjure up a sort of elevated move of piety. He says, this is what we want. It bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service. Clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. Now, what he's talking about there is um, he's talking about prayer of contemplation, which, you know, only... Only people who, who have really practiced prayer for a very long time are able to achieve. It's, it's the highest level of prayer, a prayer of contemplation. But what people need to begin with are, are just your regular prayers, you know, that you learn throughout, throughout one's life, you know, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the, you know, whatever it is. Those are the prayers that people begin with. Um, and it takes, it takes time before you, you can... You know, you start to then practice mental prayer. You start to, to graduate from praying the rose, rosary as a mere recitation of habitual prayer into, into it becoming an actual meditation on the, you know, the mysteries of the rosary, of something deeper, or um, the, the type of prayer called Lexio Divina, where you're not merely reading the Bible, but you're, you're actually going back to a particular passage and reading through it and contemplating it, or, or meditating on it, rather, numerous times to extract from it a deeper inner, me inner meaning that, that the Lord is speaking to you, you know? And then, and then you go deeper. But the prayer of contemplation is not something that, that people are, are going to start with. They just can't get there. It's like saying, you know, somebody is going to, uh, at 16, uh, be a you know, a high 300 average hitter in the major leagues. They're just not going to do it. They got to go through a farm system. They still got to practice. They still got to mature. They have to, they have to put in more work. But if, 
But as he says, if we can trick people into thinking that's what they're doing, all the better. Which is kind of one of those things that can happen. You know, I mean, I've had any number of people come to me and say, Father, I think I'm going through a dark night of the soul, which is a reference, of course, to St. John of the Cross. You know, and then they tell me the story and I'm like, you know, I think you're just depressed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is really what St. John of the Cross was talking about. You know, but a lot of times people can get very elevated about where they actually think they are in the spiritual life. And his point is, if we can elevate a person to thinking that's where they're at, all the better to dupe them into thinking that really, you know, something is just merely their affectations and emotions and they think it's the dark night of the soul. Good. Keep them focused on that because they're not going any deeper and they're not growing. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals. And that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. Now, we talked about that when um, we were talking about uh, what we'd say is, is theological anthropology, right? Body and soul, composite. We're both body and soul. And so the things that affect us spiritually can affect us physically. The things that affect us physically affect us spiritually. All right? And so he's talking about uh, posture relative to prayer, that it matters if people kneel when they pray. You know, when people, uh, when we go to Mass and we're kneeling and then we're sitting and then we're standing and why can't we just sit, you know? Why are we doing all this? Well, it all means something. You know, why do we stand for the Gospel? We stand for the Gospel because it's a sign of, um, uh, number one, it's, it's, it's a sign of, or it's a, it's a particular posture of prayer, but it's also a sign of respect for the, for the Word of God, the, the, the actual life of Christ being proclaimed at that time. To sit during the gospel would be, um, it's funny that I say that because there's one time throughout the year where, where it's allowed that you can sit because the gospel's so long. But, um, but other than that, we stand out of reverence for what we're hearing. But the, the physical posture matters. So if you, in other words, if you can just make somebody lazy, you know, and just not really care about their posture. I mean, what's, so what's important then is when you're thinking about your prayer, and, you know, it, it's good to even have a place in your house that's sort of separate, you know, a place of prayer as opposed to just anywhere in your house, you know. Um, now, that doesn't mean that prayer anywhere in your house is bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the intentionality makes a difference. It makes a difference to, uh, to, to have, you know, one particular chair or one corner of you know, the house where that's where you go and that's where you pray and that's where you sort of, you know, you dedicate a space and time to God. That's what we have with the church, right? On Sunday, we have a particular space and we have a particular time that we dedicate to God. You know, or when we go into the, the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, we have a particular space, you know, and people will sometimes have, you know, particular times that they want to worship in, in, the, in, the, in the chapel. That's all really, really good because it formalizes things. It makes it very intentional as opposed to sort of accidental. Like, you know, like tripping over the doorstep. We, we trip over our prayer that day. You know, oh yeah, I got it in. You know, as opposed to it being really a focus. And, and, that, and that goes through, I was talking about that a couple Sundays ago, even about tithing um, and the spiritual necessity that people have of tithing. That 
if you really want to, to grow in your spirituality relative to that discipline, uh, begin to practice tithing not as an afterthought, but as something that's planned, as something you, you, know, you look at, even if you look at it as just kind of like throughout the month and budgeting. You know, actually budget your tithing and make it more intentional because there's a good chance that when you look at it at the beginning, you know, it, it, it looks, maybe it looks more like $10 as opposed to $2 because when you're, shuff, when you're rifling through your purse, you know, on Sunday, it, tithing looks like $2. But at the beginning of the month when you're planning it, you're like, well, what do I want to give? You know, how do I want to give? How do I want to express my dependence on God and my generosity? How do I want to do that, Right? It, it changes things. It changes the spiritual reality of it. If, if this fails, he was going on about the posture, a subtler misdirection is, po- is, you must fall back on a subtler misdirection of his intention. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him, God, toward themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that that's what they're doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling. Oh, this is huge. This is huge. Because, I mean... Again, I, it just kind of comes into my head. Sorry, get excited about it. But, but it's huge, you know, because people are, I mean, it happens to me too. You know, you pray and you pray and I don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't feel anything. The majority of my life as a priest, I haven't felt anything. Maybe I'm a bad priest. I'm fairly convinced I am. But that set aside, that set aside, you know, I just don't feel, it's rare that I feel God's presence. And then every once in a while, Bam! You know, it's like a shotgun to the chest. It's like God, not that I felt that, but, you know, it's, it's this huge blow and this huge, like, jolt of grace and energy, and you're like, oh, you're really still there. And then silence for years. And then, bam! That's what he does. And very often, early on, you who would be baptized, very the floaties, you know, and I hope you feel it. I really do. I hope you feel it because when you feel that energy, or you feel that grace, better word, you feel that grace, that presence, it's going to, it's going to um, strengthen you for when you don't feel it because I think most of the time you won't. But here's the other danger is that we can generate within ourselves emotions and, and we can persuade ourselves that those feelings of God are coming from God and not from ourselves, right? And that's what he's saying. Get the people to generate the feelings so that they feel good about themselves or they feel a particular you know, virtue about the reality of what they're praying for. Make them, get them to generate that within themselves as opposed to actually receiving something from God. And then they feel like they've done something. But then they also then then also they fall into a trap of as soon as you get people focused on this sort of affective experience of prayer, okay, then when they don't have that experience of prayer, they think God wasn't there. There are particular religions who actually enunciate it thusly. 
And they'll say that, you know, we've got to uh, generate within ourselves enough religious fervor so that the Spirit shows up. And it's up to us, through our prayer, through our singing, through, through our generation of emotion, it's up to us to get the Spirit to appear. All right? And without, you know, hammering that too much, it's all fantasy. What does that mean then about God? That we can actually, that, that means that we can affect God? We can get him to arrive when we want him. We can get him to jump when we want him to jump. We can, you know, get him to make us feel a certain way when we want him to do something for us. That's not what God does. God does what he does. But we're certainly not the ones who are causing him to do anything. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him, which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare, which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. If you look into your patient's mind when he is praying, you will not find that. If you examine the object which he is attending, you will find that it is a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during the discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. All right, on and on. Basically what he's saying is that people will conjure up in their minds images of who God is and pray to that. Okay, or they will, you know, some will even, even pray to, I mean, the, you know, the danger that, that perhaps those who use images like Catholics do or the Eastern Orthodox do, crucifixes and pictures, a person could actually fall into, you know, focusing on, on the image or the statue or the crucifix as though that were actually God himself, as opposed to sort of a, a gateway or, or an assistance that, that draws us deeper into prayer. It actually could become the thing itself. If you can get somebody to do that, of course, Satan will do that. Get him to pray to it, to the thing he has made, not to the person who has made him. Get him to focus on the object. If he ever consciously directs his prayers not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation is for that moment desperate. So that the, the um, you know, when people, t when the saints talk about the interior life and prayer and, and when they arrive at that higher level of prayer, they talk about making room for God to do what he's going to do as opposed to them trying to affect something happening so that the prayer becomes, the, or the prayer, the one who is praying becomes wholly receptive to whatever it is God wants to reveal. So, so that our, our prayer is not focused on ourselves, our prayer is not focused on what we need or what we want or how God needs to fix stuff, but that our prayer ultimately becomes a, a complete openness to whatever it is God wants to reveal to us in that moment of prayer. You know, I mean, and this is, this is, what, we, this is what we mean when we say uniting our will to God's. And we find that, I think, if we, if we really examine our prayer, we're doing a whole lot of trying to get God to unite his will to ours. If God would only see it our way, and fix the things we need him to fix, well, then he'd be a much better God than he is currently. <laughs> but we do that all the time, you know? 
because we have needs and we have wants, and those aren't wrong. I mean, it's not wrong to petition, but we always have to remember that, you know, petitionary prayer is just one part of prayer, and it's not even really the goal of prayer to get what we want. The goal of prayer always goes back to relationship, right? It always is between I and thou. It's always, it's always this relationship we're trying, to, we're trying to grow, we're trying to increase. Okay, let me uh, see here. So we're in chapter 5, war has broken out. Um, and uh, he notes that uh, Wormwood is really excited about the fact that there's a war. And, uh, you know, and Screwtape says, hold on here. War is not necessarily a great thing for us. I mean, yeah. There's, there's suffering, there's casualties, there's, there's great evil that's done. However, there's also other things which, uh, which rise against us. Um, we may hope for a good deal of cruelty and unchastity, but if we are not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy, while tens of thousands who do not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than the self. All right? Because in war, war causes, war can cause um, acts of heroism. Right? It, it, it can cause a person to, to be courageous, uh, to, to fight for a greater good than themselves. These are all things which, which move a person away from their egoism or narcissism which is, of course, exactly what God wants for us. God often makes prizes of humans whom we have given their li- who have given their lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstru- monstrously sophistical ground that the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. So a, a person fighting a war that is an unjust war, right? A uh, person fighting a war that is an unjust war but, but believes himself being courageous and thinking he's doing it for the right reasons, it's still an act of virtue. And it's still good for the person to, to do that. Even if, you know, ultimately the war would be, you know, could be illegal or unjust, that, that's, that's potentially irrelevant for the individual who's acting courageously. He says, men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go and to which they go, knowing that they would be killed. If they are at all of the enemy's party, prepared. Oh, let me read that again. That was horrible. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go. If they are at all of the enemy's party, prepared. They go prepared, knowing that they might die. When a person knows that they might die, they often are prepared for death. Right? They make peace you know, with God and their creator. I mean, how many times people have asked me for, Father, can I go to confession? You know, it's an emergency. What's the emergency? Well, I'm going on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's not, it doesn't count as an emergency, but okay. I mean, I, I get it. You know, I get it. I mean, it's more dangerous. It was more dangerous driving here last night than, a, than on a plane. Okay. The enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption. 
so that a faith which is destroyed by a war or a pestilence cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. I'm speaking now of diffuse suffering over a long period, since such as the war will produce. Of course, at the precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I have found that the post is nearly always defended. When a person is in pain and suffering, and if they just appeal to God, they get the help they need, is what he's saying. Okay, let me get through uh, six. And he says, there's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. I mean, think of how much of your time is consumed by, by anxiety, by worrying about the future. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my kids? What, do I have enough money? Do I have enough of this? What's going to happen? All, all our temporal life, not eternity, all of our, you know, this, this anxiety about what might happen, you know, which, by the way, in psychology is called, an, it's another cognitive distortion, you know, focusing on things that don't even exist. We get anxious about this. This, is gonna, this might happen, or this might happen, or this might happen. We're anxious about things that do not exist. If you just kind of think about it in those terms, why am I so upset about things that don't actually exist? The only thing that exists is now. What God wants us to focus on is now. What Satan wants us to focus on is the future, or what might happen, or, you know, he wants us to be anxious and fearful. Another reason why Jesus said, fear is useless. What's needed is trust. And I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and pull out all your money from your 401k. I'm not saying that, right? right? That's just irresponsibility. I'm talking about the interior anxiety that consumes us. What's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to me? It doesn't really matter because it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. When you think about it in those terms, it's kind of silly. Just worry about right now. Don't worry about right now, just deal with right now, right? Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means is that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, thy will be done. And for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. So that even the, even the tribulation or the anxiety about the right now is something that has to be dealt with, which is different than getting lost in the anxiety and get thrown off track. But, but dealing with the anxieties or the, the difficulties or the suspense of right now is the daily bread, or I'm sorry, is that which a person needs to say, thy will be done, and for which the daily bread will be provided. It's your business to see that the patient never thinks of this present fear as his appointed cross, but only the things he's afraid of. Right? Don't don't get a person to think that, okay, i got to take up my cross and bear this right now. Get him to focus on just something more abstract. Verse 7. 
Let him forget that, that they are his crosses, since they are incompatible. They cannot all happen to him. And let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen different hypothetical fates is almost impossible. And the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is easier and is usually helped by this direct action. All right. And then kind of the last point here, the very end of that chapter. He's talking about, I, I kind of mentioned that he would come back to this. He says, do what you will, there's going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to, to the remote circumference, circumference to the people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. Right? So that... Well, I have great love for mankind and world peace and all that stuff, but I can't stand my I can't stand the Brussels sprouts, you know. I love the mashed potatoes, but I hate the Brussels sprouts. So I, you know, I can't stand the people next to me. I hate them, but I love humanity, you know. That does no good for building up virtue, loving humanity in the abstract. Um, and then he talks about virtues, you know, shoving the virtues further out so that they're sort of in the circle of fantasy. You know, again, this, this sort of, this general love of mankind that a person could, could, uh, could muster um, within their, their affectations, you know, their emotions. They can emotionally feel love for all things, but they can't feel love for the person across, you know, in the other pews on the other side of the church. Well, that's what they need to focus on, not love in general, love in, particu in particular, love actually. Oh, that was a movie. Never saw it. <laughs> okay, so um, so you see where we're going uh, here, and uh, um, hopefully now it's a little bit, you know, if, if there was some stumbling initially, uh, those of you who, who were able to read, um, and those of you who will continue, um, you know, that's, that's how I'm going to be, you know, sort of addressing the topics, and that's also... What I'm hoping is that if you, if you are able to read some, you're contemplating it, you're thinking about it, then when you come to class, you'll get my observations. And again, hopefully this is gonna resonate somehow within you to, to look at some areas of your life that need some alteration or ways of thinking about spirituality that have perhaps been askew. Um, I find Lewis to be uh, rather trustworthy on, on these points. All right. See you next week.